Well, good morning, and if you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open them to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Now, actually, we'll look at a little bit of the last part of chapter 7. And you know, it's interesting that the conversion of Saul actually begins, I believe, there in the last part of chapter 7, going into chapter 8, because actually... The Lord cites that. He said, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the proddings of the Holy Spirit. And we remember that Saul was a religious zealot. He was Jewish and he took great pleasure. And the words in the Greek are, you take great pleasure in killing people. Pretty sick. You know, it's funny how religion sometimes will blind people to what God's best for them really is. In other words, I don't need Jesus, I don't need God, I have my religion. I've met many religious people, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You can have a faith, but your faith can be misplaced. And so therefore, the Bible tells us that we have to have our faith in the right place. He that believeth in me, Jesus said in John 14, that is what's important. Misplaced faith will lead to false doctrine in your life, and false doctrine always leads to a misled life. That's this is one of the great problems that we find. If you again, if you have your Bibles, we're just going to look at the last couple of verses of chapter seven, and then we're going to go into chapter eight. Let's pray. Father, as we go to your word this morning, may your Holy Spirit speak to us. Give us that wisdom that comes from you. May we remember these things in the days to come, how you will help us, and you're always there. In Jesus' name, amen. We remember, it says, then they stoned Stephen, verse 59 of chapter seven. Now, Stephen was one of the guys originally appointed to watch over the distribution of goods for the women uh, in the church. And, And so we look and see a menial job that was appointed to them. God begins to bless them abundantly insomuch that his wisdom is so great that when he's accused by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, he really cuts them to shreds. They're so convicted, their only solution is to kill him. Well, I got to tell you, that's a pretty dynamic testimony to be able to do that. But the second thing we find here is that they stoned him. And while they're stoning him, it says, as he was calling on the Lord, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, He fell asleep. Speaking of his body. Paul tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Whether you're looking at 1 Kings in the Old Testament, looking at Elijah bringing a little boy back to life, it says that when he prayed for him who was dead, his spirit returned to him. Jarius' daughter in the book of Luke chapter 8, we remember they said, Uh, He came to Jesus, Jarius, the little girl's dad, said, my daughter is grievously ill. She's going to die. And while he's talking to Jesus, his servants come and said, don't trouble a master. Your daughter's already dead. And Jesus said, well, let's go anyway to where his daughter was. And we find the mourners all there wailing and crying out because she was dead. 
And Jesus said, oh, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. The Bible says they laughed Jesus to scorn. What an idiot. She's dead. She's not sleeping. Well, we remember that Jesus put everybody out of the house. And by the way, if you don't want to see the miracles of God, you won't see him. Put everybody out, brought a couple of disciples in with him and said, daughter, arise. And the little girl, the Bible says her spirit returned to her. It does not say her spirit woke up in her. The idea of soul sleep, when you die, you just lay in the ground for, you know, a thousand, two thousand years until the resurrection of Christ in these days. That's not in the Bible. When you die, your body goes to the ground. But your spirit goes to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The words in the Greek are instantaneous. Boom, boom, that fast. When you check out of here, you're going to get a new, uh, you're going to be in heaven with the Lord. Now, you're going to get a new body one of these days. uh, Those that have gone to be with the Lord. I don't believe anybody in heaven right now that's died in faith is lacking anything. But we know that during the millennial reign of Christ, we're going to need a body to rule and reign with him. Just as Jesus demonstrated that body to the disciples after he rose from the dead. We remember he could appear behind locked doors. He could eat food. He wasn't an essence or a ghost. But he had a body of a different dimension that I believe we're going to have. And I think it's going to be really handy during the millennial reign of Christ. You're not going to see the wholesale idiocy running around what we call government today. During the reign of Christ, it's going to be done God's way. And you might say, well, how is that going to be done? Well, that's why we have the Bible. You're going to go back to the Levitical law, I believe, on how God will govern this planet. Now, remember, during the millennial reign of Christ, you will have people who love God that made it through the tribulation period. You'll have babies born during the the uh, millennial reign of Christ. You're going to have people that enjoy the blessings of Jesus Uh perfect rain on this earth, perfect food, perfect environment, uh, perfect everything, but they're not believers. So you're going to find this whole thing, and yet we will, the Bible says, rule and reign with him. Uh, People a lot of time have asked the questions, well, if God already knows who makes it to heaven and who doesn't, why do I have to go through this zoo called living? I think that's a fair question. But remember, us going through these things is not for God's benefit, Oh, I hope he figures it out. Oh, is he got? Oh, no, look what he did today. I don't believe God does that looking at us. I believe what God is doing is allows us to go through these things for our benefit that we learn. And friends, again, I believe that we are going to learn a whole lot more the minute we walk into heaven than we know right now. I don't believe we ever stop learning. And I believe, again, as you look at the expanse of God's kingdom, what's inside the atom, what's beyond the stars, I believe that's what God's going to do with all of us someday in heaven. Oh, I don't want to go to heaven and sit around on some big cloud eating angel food cake. No, you're not going to do that. The Bible says that you will be shown God's greatness forever. What's beyond the stars? You know, it's interesting with these new high-powered telescopes, they're finding the universe is even bigger than they thought before. Wow. And yet God created it all. We're going to see it all someday. Gee, Dad, can I take the 
Galactica out tonight? You know, no, I, I'm just kidding. You have to go back a time. There was a TV show. They had the Galactica. It was like the Star Wars ship, and they'd go out and explore vast unknown planets. You know, one of the things that always bothered me about Star Wars. Here they're cruising around 3000 AD. The captain of the ship, Picard, no cure for baldness yet. Anyway, just an observation I made. Um, bothers me. My hair's having a race, turn gray or fallout. I hate it when the fallout's winning. I don't know where I went with that bunny trail, but I just wanted you to know about that. Now, verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul, consenting to his death. The word consenting here means finding great pleasure. Saul was one sick puppy. Claiming to have a relationship with God, yet wanting to see people murdered. Well, he says, consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution against the church, which uh, uh, the persecution against the church arose, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, the word here to scatter doesn't mean to disappear. The word here in the original language means as a farmer would go out sowing seed and he would scatter seed by the handfuls in the field so he'd get a crop. This is the, the wording that's used here, that really they were scattered, but not to destroy, but rather to expand. And God has a different way of looking at things oftentimes that we do. And I, I believe that's one of the reasons why it's important to be in fellowship church and things like that, being around other Christians, because we always want to get God's perspective of life rather than our own. Many times we'll look at someone and go, oh, what was me? This shouldn't have happened. I Bad luck. No, you don't, as a believer, have bad luck. Your life is ordered by God. And sometimes the very thing that appears to be bad in your life, as we would interpret, is God's hand preparing you and moving you to where he wants you to be. You would never be looking for that new job unless you lost your old one. And God does these things. So remember, if you're a child of God here today, you have a heavenly father that loves you. And he's got the very best for you. And that's so much different than religion that's always trying to please God. Please God, I'll burn incense sticks. I'll sell flowers in the airport. God just says, look, I love you and I've divinely ordered your footsteps. And so when God closes a door, all I can tell you is look for another open one. And there's always going to be those. Persecution came against Stephen. Then it spread to the church in Jerusalem. And so we find them scattering now. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. Stephen was a first martyr, you might say. After Jesus was crucified on the cross, probably the very same people that Stephen made his presentation to about the gospel and who Jesus was, was probably the very same people that just a few months or maybe a year before, Stephen 
the very same people that Stephen was speaking to are the same ones that were persecuting Jesus as well. And so it's interesting to me that a lot of times people, and this is one of the mistakes that I think happens in church sometimes, is that, and I had a question a while ago on Every Man and Answer, and it said, the guy said, well, why don't we concentrate on more of the miracles and the happy things in the Bible? Because not everything in our perspective is happy things. Paul says, I was shipwrecked. I was, I was beaten with rods. I was, a, I was in the water day and night in the deep. I was in perils in the, with my countrymen. I was perilled in the wilderness. He goes, list all these things. Well, these aren't the flowery miracles that oftentimes we see on TV that's presented that once you're a Christian. Yes, God does do miracles, and we see many miracles that Jesus did, whether it was taking Peter and John and releasing them from prison. But then sometimes we find Stephen being a martyr. People ask the question, well, what happened? Why did Stephen uh, uh, get martyred and and Peter and, and, and John get out of jail? Friends, I don't know. I don't know how God does what he does. I'm just glad that he does it. And that's what God's called me to do. I am not here to judge God. You're not either. We're here to say, yes, Lord, thy will be done. And becoming a Christian, knowing I have a father that loves me, he's got the very best for you and me, whatever that is. And sometimes in prayer, we'll pray, Lord will heal them. Sometimes I prayed for people and they've died. Be careful when you ask me to pray for you. But... But the thing is, God knows what's best. I can only do what God has told me to do in his word. That's all you can do as well. The rest is in God's hands. The question always goes back to, have I done what God's word said to do about this situation? And that's where we let that set. So it says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. I like that. They went everywhere, but they brought with them a message of hope. You know, I really believe that's true. And you know, a lot of times we'll share our faith with somebody and they don't want to hear it. Well, I'm never going to tell anybody else about the Lord. No, you don't do that. If one person won't hear it, you go to the next person. Jesus said, if you go to a town, they don't receive your message, shake the dust off your feet and keep going. You don't sit there and get whimpered out and say, oh, well, nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. What we do is we just keep going. And this is exactly what they did. They did not look at the persecution as God's abandonment, but actually God's motivation to spread the gospel, as Jesus said, that we, the church, would be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Now, how God accomplishes his work sometimes goes far beyond my ability to figure it out. And that's one of the things I want to be very careful when I pray and I ask God to do something. I got it all figured out how God's going to do it. Well, this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and this, oh, my plan. God is good. Bless my plan. And God goes, no, I have to do it completely different. Why? Because God's ways are not our ways. And when God does something, he not only ministers to your need, but he also blesses people around you. And so that's exactly what was happening. 
we find that in the Bible, we find those times of refreshing and blessing and miracles and power. And sometimes we find ourselves in the valleys. But remember this, friends, when you're in the valley, that's where the crops are grown. You never find crops growing on top of mountains. It's always in the valley is where the crops are grown. That's where the re- that's where the, the harvest and the reaping comes in. And so if you're going through a valley in your life right now, and I think this is one of the good things about church and fellowship, I might be in a valley, but you might be having a great mountaintop experience. And a little bit of that mountaintop experience you're having rubs off on me and encourages me. You see, a lot of us were the body of Christ. We, we encourage one another and we bear one another's burdens and there's a heart and a felt uh, uh, from, our, from our spirit to, to help one another and bless one another and restore one another. This is one of the great things that I think God does in his family. Well, in verse 5, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Whoa, who's Philip? Philip just appears. No, he's another one of the seven that were appointed back in the previous chapters to watch over the women's distribution of their needs. So we find Stephen, we found Philip. Now God is beginning to use Philip in an amazing way as well. You see, it's interesting. They try to stuff out Stephen and what's amazing, God just raises up another one and another one. You and me and all of us here in this room, all those listening by radio, God raises us up to do something amazing for him. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now remember, Samaria was a town that by large the Jews didn't like. That area of Samaria where the Assyrian Empire some 750 years before conquered. And when they would do that, they would then conquer and they would take the people of that area away, the Jews away, relocate them throughout Asia, and then bring another group of people to live in their homes, thus disorienting the, uh, the people. Uh, you didn't know where everything was. It kept the revolts down, all those kinds of things. And so that's why he did that. Uh, and so Samaritans were considered unclean because they were intermixed. There was Jews that were left behind that would mix with the people from other countries. And remember, Jesus uh, comes into town and there was a woman at the well. And he said, woman, give me a drink of water. And she says, how be it you being a Jew ask me for a drink of water? I'm a Samaritan and we don't have inner reaction with each other. And Jesus begins to reason with her. She says, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. Not only do you not have anything to draw with, you don't even have a cup to drink out of, literally. Jesus was willing not only to associate with a Samaritan, but drink from the same cup that she was drinking from. Friends, that's love. And Jesus did this. You know, and I've shared this many times, and always remember this, when you see something out of the ordinary, look for God. Even she recognized that. She says, how it, that you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, and you're talking to me. This is out of the ordinary. But that's where God did a great miracle. Whenever you see something out of the ordinary in your Christian experience, look for God. It's just the way it works. Well, anyway, this is where he went. He went to this very place where they weren't generally liked. And so it says, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken of by Philip 
hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. God does not have favorites. And what God did for others, he'll do for you. The miracles he's done in others, he'll do for you. And so we find miracles now, not only coming from Stephen, who has now been martyred, but we find now Philip also doing miracles, and he started waiting on tables. Remember, a lot of times, ministry starts small. What God will do in your life starts small, but then God begins to add to your ministry and what he wants you to do. If you're faithful over little, the Bible says, he makes you faithful over much. And as I believe these men were faithful, God begins to expand their ministries and what they, the, what they were doing. And it says, and the multitudes in one accord, again, um, heeded the things spoken by Philip, seeing the miracles that he did. Unclean spirits crying with a loud voice as they came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man named Simon who previously practiced magic, sorcery, in the city, astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom all gave him heed, to the least, to the greatest, saying, this man has the great power of God. So through magic, he was duping the people, and they were believing that he was somebody great because he could do incantations and things like that. The Bible uses the word concerning the Antichrist in the days to come that he will dupe the world by lying signs and wonders. So this isn't something new that we're going to see coming out of the Antichrist. It's been going on a long time. The old bait him and switch him thing. But here's the truth. When the real comes along, the fake is revealed. In other words, you can have fake money in your wallet until you find the real money and you realize there's a difference. How do you know the difference between real and fake? The more you handle the real, the more you can spot the lie. Well, this is what happened here. And it says, Simon comes along. They thought he was somebody great. And he had, uh, they'd heeded him for a long time uh, and astonished them by the sorceries uh, that he had done. But when they had believed Philip... As he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also was baptized. When he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which they were doing. Now, this is interesting because you have a, a magician that knows that he was using trickery to deceive the people. And he's hanging around with Philip and he's seeing the real deal now. And I believe this really probably, um, probably really touched him inside. But you know, just because a person is touched doesn't necessarily mean they're going to really be truly and completely converted. Now notice it says here again, um, but when they believe Philip, as he preached these things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, both men and women were baptized. There was absolute conversions going on. People were believing in Christ. They were baptized. And we're going to explain a little bit more when we get a little bit farther down here. Now, verse 14, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them 
who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Friends, I don't think anything can be any clearer in the Bible than this. Yet people, because they believe in church dogma more than the Bible, they will wrangle the scripture. We know that everybody was gathered in the upper room. Jesus said, wait in the upper room. The Holy Spirit will come upon you with power and boldness. This is one of the things that the Holy Spirit was going to do. They went to the upper room. They waited. The day of Pentecost came, that Pentecost Sunday. And they were filled with the Spirit. They began to speak with other tongues. Fire was above their head. All kinds of things were going on. There was a sound of a rushing mighty wind back in Acts chapter 2. And the whole town came in and said, what does this mean? We hear them all speaking in our languages. And some said, oh, they're drunk with wine. Peter said, they're not drunk with wine since this is the only third hour of the day. This is nine o'clock in the morning. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, who was once so meek and mild and timid, now stands up in boldness, explaining what they're all seeing, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Remember, they were all believers that were gathered in the upper room. But the Holy Spirit came upon them with power. Now, God wants to come upon you with power. You might be a believer, but if you've noticed a lack of power in your life, a lack of maybe a love for the lost, maybe a lack of boldness to speak your faith, I would say you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. People say, well, no, I believe you get the Holy Spirit when when you're saved. Well, right here rebukes that. Again, I don't want to teach church dogma. I want to teach the Bible. And when the Bible says they were believers, they were, they were baptized, but the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them, I have got to conclude it's a second work of the Holy Spirit. Now, is it possible to get the Holy Spirit when you believe? Well, yes, we find Peter when he was preaching to the Gentiles. Right in the middle of his sermon, they started speaking in other tongues. How dare God interrupt Peter's sermon? But he did. And he and, and, and they begin. So yes, I do believe that's possible. But generally, as we find here, Acts chapter two, Peter or excuse me, Paul writing uh, chapter nineteen, he says, Since you believed, have you been filled with the Spirit? I don't think it can get any clearer than that. If we'll stop teaching church dogma, because, well, our denomination believes you get the Holy Spirit when you believe. Well, yeah, you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, but you haven't been endued with power. This is why the disciples came down here. I've had people, I've actually heard people say, well, no, this was another Acts chapter 2 experience here for the Gentiles. No, a thousand times no. First of all, Samaritans weren't necessarily Gentiles. They were half-breeds. Yes, they were Jewish as well as intermingled with the Gentiles. That's the first one. But the second thing that we have to realize is that we find that it appears to be a second work of the Holy Spirit to fill them with boldness, and love. That's why I believe in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, you have the outline of the workings of the gifts of the Spirit, as well as chapter 14. But wedged between these two chapters is chapter 13, called the love chapter in the Bible. And this is where Paul says, though I speak with tongue and men of angels, and I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Now, one of, I think it's interesting that the key Sign of the Holy Spirit is not if you can speak in tongues, but can you love? 
And do you have a love for the lost? That's what it's talking about. Because remember this, friends, and I've shared this so many times. By nature, we as human beings don't care. We just don't. You're going to hell? Yeah, you probably deserve it. That's kind of our attitude. I mean, people will flip people off just because they make a left-hand turn out of the right lane, which is always scary. But I'm saying there's not a love for the lost. And listen, if you don't love the people you're trying to reach, you won't reach them with the right message. You say, what do you mean? Jonah was commissioned by God. He said, go tell uh, the city of Nineveh to repent. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the very ones that conquered northern Samaria, this area of the Samaritans. He said, go tell them to repent. So Jonah didn't want to go. You remember the story. God prepared a great fish. He got swallowed three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. This is not a parable. Jesus actually cites that concerning himself. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be in the earth. Very clearly, Jesus did not reference Jonah and the whale as a metaphor or a pretty story to tell your children. It's a real happening. God prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. He repents. God speaks to the fish. The fish cruises up to the beach, ralphs him out on the beach, literally, barfs him out. You know, that's a humbling experience to be fish barf. Something to think about. Think you're having a bad day? Think about that one. I can imagine. Now, listen. You, you guys that catch fish, you, you catch fish, you're around fish. Do you know you don't have to cut the fish open? You don't have to gut it in order to, to smell like a fish. You just get that slime all over you, and you smell like your fish, and you go in, and your wife goes, ooh, you smell like a fish. Imagine being inside one for three days. The gastric juices are starting to digest you. Your hair is gone. Your skin turns a lighter shade of pale green. You get barfed out on the beach. And this is the preparation for him to go into Nineveh. You know, when he goes into Nineveh, he doesn't go in and say, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He goes into Nineveh and he says, 40 days and you're fried. I can just see the, the people going, there's a green man in the street, mommy, and he's screaming that we're all going to die in 40 days. Well, whatever it was, it was so freaky weird. The Bible says even the king of, of, of Assyria repented in sackcloth and ashes. And God granted that city another hundred years, actually a little bit more than a hundred years, before he brought a judgment upon them. The point was is this, Jonah did not come with a message of God's love. He came with a message of God's judgment. And that message of God's judgment is 40 days and you're all dead. Good. But completely different than the work of the Holy Spirit. Where we find that even as they're stoning Stephen to death, he says, please, Lord, don't lay this sin to their account. 
reminiscent of what Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, there was a love even for those that were persecuting them. And I believe this is a work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Again, if you look at the Gospels, it'll say in Jesus many times. It'll say in Jesus, seeing the multitudes had compassion on them. The key ingredient of compassion is love. And so having that compassion for the lost, I believe, is what spawns the heart of God. And that's where true ministry comes from. Again, I've shared this many times, but being a product of the 60s and, and uh, early 70s and, you know, love is all you need and the whole, that, that whole hippie movement that was there, people were looking for love. And it wasn't until really the Jesus movement hit where actually we discovered that God, as a matter of fact, but he really does love you. And I'm going, gee, that's amazing. What is there in us that's lovable to God? Honestly, friends, nothing other than you were created by him. And because of that, like a lost sheep, he wants to redeem you and bring you back. And this is what, this is the way God's love works. And Jesus seeing you and Jesus seeing me had compassion upon us. He reached out to us in love. And see, that's what everybody in the 60s was looking for. They'd come home. They were called latchkey kids. Mom and dad were out, you know, climbing the the uh, the uh, utopian ladder of all the cars and money and all that kind of stuff. Kids had come home. Nobody was there. No one loved them. They felt unloved, and probably they were because their parents had chose careers over them. And so when someone came along and said, as a matter of fact, God loves you, that was wonderful because we didn't hear that. We didn't see that. And so those that were Christians at that time, I remember as we were Christians in our home, and I remember a lot of kids didn't have anybody at home when they'd come home from school. They'd all come over to our house. My mom would have something, usually cooking in the oven, and we'd feed them. And there would be times that we'd have probably five, six kids over our house after school was over because the kids had nowhere to go, because no one cared. But see, love makes a difference. And Jesus, seeing the multitudes, had compassion on him. The infilling of the Holy Spirit gives us an unnormal love for the lost. Otherwise, we would say, yeah, they're dying, going to hell. Good. That's not God's heart. God's heart says, I want to save them. And I want you, and I'm going to empower you to go out and do it. And so we find the empowering of the Holy Spirit to reach out to people, to love them where they are. You know, that was one of the great problems that, well, if you come up to a certain standard, dress up, cut your hair, wear a three-piece suit, we might let you into church. And so I remember we'd go into church, and and if you didn't look like all of them, then you were kind of ostracized, and, you know, you're a long-haired hippie freak. Go sit in the back of the church where we don't have to look at you. This is exactly what the book of James warns about. Somebody comes into the church all uh, decked out, Gucci, sit up here where everybody can see you. Somebody comes in vile and vile raiment. You sit in the back of the church where nobody can look at you. This is showing partiality, and it's not love. Last night, we celebrated, as you know, um, Ed and, and uh, uh, Violet's 60th wedding anniversary. And uh, Christians for 
literally longer than most of us have been alive and still married. I, I told people 10 years is a long time to do anything, let alone 60. But what was really interesting is the very thing that people look for in love is the very thing that God wants to do in your life. And when we, we see love, not a selfish love, but a love that gives, it, it stands the test of time. The disciples come to the place where Philip had been ministering to people. They had accepted the Lord. They were baptized. Yes, I do believe the first work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is the conviction of sin. But then there's the empowering. And Jesus said, it's good that I go to heaven. I will send the comforter to you. And this is what I believe happens here. It's not, uh, you know, Acts chapter 2, part 2. No, it's just a continuation that they had believed, but they hadn't been fire baptized, if you will. They, they, they didn't have that supernatural love that God wants to give us and the powers and the miracles of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, you want to know what the miracles, uh, the gifts of the Spirit are? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there's the words of knowledge and the gifts of healing and the words of, uh, of tongues and all these different gifts that God has. But I real, as he says, but the greatest of these is love. Again, it doesn't matter if a person can stand on, a, on chairs and swing on chandeliers and scream in tongues. If you don't have love, it profits you nothing, Paul says. So one of the things we've got to go back to is look and say, Lord, do I really have a love for the lost? And, you know, Paul says this. He says, the love of Christ constrains me. It's not only what sometimes holds me back from blurting out things I wish I wouldn't say and yelling at somebody, but also the love of Christ constrains me into doing what he wants me to do. And, and um, you, you see, I, I believe a, a Christian experience without the Holy Spirit is, is like a rut. And a rut is just the coffin with the ends kicked out. And a lot of people don't have any new life flowing into them. You're, you're kind of like the Dead Sea. It just flows in there. It doesn't flow out. And, and I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do that in a believer's life. It's not something you earn by being a really good Christian. It's just a gift that God gives you simply because you ask it. Jesus said, you being evil know how to give your children good gifts. How much more do your, your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And the Bible says he empowers us to do supernatural things. The reason why, as an example, there are missionaries that risk their life to go over in foreign lands to give up the comforts and the conveniences that they experience here is because they have a love for the lost. They have a love, that supernatural love that God does. Why do we as a church here have radio stations to minister to people in the whole world? Because we have a love for the lost. Some people have maybe Uganda or some of these other countries overseas as their target of ministry. Ours happens to be America. And through the radio that we have here, we can reach about one-third of America by radio every single day, every single minute. And I look at that and I realize, why do I do this? You know, people have said, and actually I've had people that have come to work for us, 
seeing how all this works, and then instead of them joining forces, what they did is figured, hey, I can make a big, sweet profit here. And they took a lot of our technology and they used it to enrich themselves. And because they did this, they became more of a problem than the ACLU and all the others was just people within that were greedy to use the things that God had given us to benefit themselves. Friends, it's not new. It's something that's always been there. But that shouldn't stop you and me from doing what God does. You say, well, Mike, I I love this person. They take advantage of me. I, I let them live in my home and they stole my stuff. Same thing. But you see, God who sees it all will reward you down the road. That's what God's called us to do, is to bless He's the, he's the daddy. He's the one that, that adds and subtracts. You know, people a lot of times think they're the ones that make the difference whether you make it or not. It's not. You see people, you look at some of these multi-billionaires today. And, and um, this one guy, he, he uh, got, you know, you know, blunted by his girlfriend so he starts a web page, and now it's one of the biggest ones in the world. He wasn't doing it to be rich. He just wanted to get back at his old girlfriend. Now a millionaire, billionaire. You know, God is the one that makes wealthy, and God is the one that makes poor. I know the Bible doesn't, a lot of people don't like that thought, but you know what? Sometimes it isn't until we run out of everything that we realize God's all we got, and he's all you need. So understanding how God works in our lives is so important that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would be empowered. And I think it's so amazing that it said he had yet not fallen on them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's what God does. Now, Simon, of course, the magician, seeing all this, goes, what is your secret? And as we'll read next week, he tries to buy the secret. And that's what magicians do. They sell their secrets. In fact, you'll see uh, a lot of times these different uh, magicians on TV, and then you find their magic kits in the stores for your kids revealing the secrets on how they do it. Well, that was a common practice for magicians to sell their secrets to somebody else. And so he goes and he says to Philip, I want to buy this. How, how do you do this? I, I, I want to I buy this so whoever I lay my hands on gets the Holy Spirit as well. And um, they said, uh, basically, you and your money, your money perishes with you. Your heart's not right in this. You don't even have the right heart for all of this. You see it as some way of making gain where God's purpose is to set people free. This morning, if you're not free, I want to encourage you to consider Jesus. If you're a Christian, you have a heavenly father in heaven that watches over you, that guides the circumstances of your life. If you're not a Christian... You're all there, all by yourself, alone. And the devil just beats you to death. Keeps your, try, keeps your running from the sins you can't erase. And yet God says, I just want to forgive you 
and love you and restore you and bless you. Do you want another five years like you just had? Do you want another ten years? Do you want another lifetime like you just had? Or maybe you might say, Lord, I'm sorry, and I want to do it your way, and whatever time I have left on this earth, I'm going to give it to you. I want to lay a treasure up for myself in heaven. Jesus compels us to do that. Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. I've had people say, well, you know, as long as I get there, heaven, by the skin of my teeth, I'll be happy. I feel bad for that kind of mentality. You know, you may not care about rewards today in heaven, but you will be when you get there, and you'll be glad you're getting some if you listen to what God's word says. I don't want to just say, God, look at me and say, well, you made it. I want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That is for every single person listening to this today. You say, well, how do I get that? Well, if you're a Christian, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I surrender my will to you. You'll be amazed how God will mess up your day. You got your day all figured out? Just like your prayers? All figured out how God's going to do it? And God goes, no, we're going to do something completely different. I'm going to give you a blowout on the way to work. See, because then you're going to talk to the tow truck driver because your spare's flat. Don't ask me how I know these things. And, you know, you're sitting there talking to the tow truck driver, and all of a sudden he just starts telling you about his life story and, and, and how he needs Jesus, and, and you'd be just there ministering to him. And then all of a sudden you go, God, you've got a sense of humor to put me through all this, so I would talk to this guy. God does that. It's amazing what he does. No more boring life. No more uh, copping with the ends kicked out. Man, you are on an e-ticket ride at Disneyland. And if you know what that is, you're old. See, now you just get in, you can ride on anything. Back in the old days when the earth was cooling and you had a pet dinosaur, at Disneyland they had the different rides. You had the A rides, which were kind of hokey-dokey, and then you had the B rides, where, you know, like kind of... Then the C rides, which were the teacups, and then the, the, D, the D ride, and then you had the E-ticket, the Matterhorn. You can start your dinner all over again when you ride on that. I can't ride on roller coasters anymore. I went down to Lego World with my kids. And, Daddy, will you go on the roller coaster with me? Oh, yeah, I'll go on the roller coaster with you. I rode on the Matterhorn. I don't know what this thing was I rode on. It was the manta ray or whatever. And I was going, God, please let it stop. I was turned upside down. I was slammed back and forth in the chairs. My daughter is screaming of joy. And I'm going, my neck's going to break off. It was horrible. I got out and I was just queasy in the stomach. And I go, I'm never doing that again. But no, God got a better ride. Something new, exciting every day that he'll do for you because he loves you. This morning, if you are not a Christian, we're going to pray. And you can turn your life over to God. And God, the Bible says, will adopt you as a son, just as he did to us. And then he will work his power through you. And if you've not been 
filled with the Spirit, I just want to encourage you to pray as we pray that God would fill you with his Holy Spirit and give you that boldness, a love for the lost, and whatever gifts he wants to impart to you, let him bless you. Let's pray. If you're not a Christian, you need to pray and ask Christ in your life. We're going to do that right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And I invite you into my life today. I repent of the foolish way that I have lived. And from this day forward, I commit my life into your hands. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. Took my place. His blood was shed for me. And he rose from the dead to give me life each and every day. So now, Father, I ask you in Jesus' name, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me to do great and wonderful things for you. Thank you for writing my name in your book of life and that I have a purpose here on this earth and I'll live with you forever and eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.